News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Boom, boom. On Monday, February 24th, 2020, Harvey Weinstein was found guilty of two counts in his Manhattan rape and sexual assault trial. Those two counts, criminal sexual act in the first degree and third degree rape, related to two attacks on two women. The first woman, Mimi Halei, testified that Weinstein forcibly performed oral sex on her at his Soho apartment in 2006. The second woman, Jessica Mann, testified that Harvey Weinstein raped her at a Midtown East hotel in early 2013. He was found not guilty of three counts, one count first-degree rape and two counts of predatory sexual assault. Weinstein is scheduled to be sentenced on March 11th, and he faces a minimum of five years in prison to a maximum of 29 years in prison. Um, The jury took about 30 hours to reach its verdict over slightly more than a four-day period, And, you know, a lot of people are seeing this trial as a litmus test for how the Me Too movement is going to play out in a criminal court. Well, welcome. Thank you. Welcome back. Victoria Bekempis is here on FAQ NYC. I'm Alex Lynn here with hosts Harry Siegel and Professor Christina Greer. And you've been covering this trial every day for New York Magazine's Vulture and in the courthouse every day, right? Correct. Um, Since... Day one, uh, January 7th, when jury selection began in his trial. And how many how many reporters roughly were covering? Because we saw that that pretty impressive photo spread of the female journalists covering. Well, depending on the day, there were anywhere from more than 100 reporters to perhaps 50 in the courtroom. There were 70 seats in the courtroom reserved for press on days that weren't considered big days, though I considered every day a big day. There were definitely less people. But on major days, such as the beginning of jury selection, opening statements, it was a full house. We actually instituted what's called a pool system, similar to the White House press pool, so that due to uh, First Amendment access issues that I will not go into because I could go into them for quite some time. Um, you know, we wanted to make sure that people who didn't have access to the courtroom who showed up to report on this would still have the information because, you know, all of us decided just because court officials and the judge didn't want to ensure that everyone who showed up could see what was happening. You know, judge refused to set up any type of audio feed or video feed to an mm-hmm. overflow courtroom, which, again, I could rant for quite a long time on this. And how many people um, fit into the room? Uh, I believe that the courtroom held a, a hundred people. A hundred spectators. A hundred people total. Okay. Um, so uh, now when we have had you on to talk about the R. Kelly trial and El Chapo, you talked a little bit about courtroom tourism. What was that like with Harvey Weinstein, which I assume means, you know, non-journalists, non-lawyers. And people who flew in, remember? Right. Victoria was telling us that people came. Flew in for R. Kelly, mm-hmm. prayer circles for him. 
So I, I would say— Were there say, prayer circles for Harvey Weinstein? I did not see any prayer circles. There were definitely—and again, this varied on a day-to-day basis. There were definitely people who came to watch the proceedings. There was one woman who was there every day. You know, there was one woman who showed up with, I believe, a miniature schnauzer in her purse who claimed that she was there to see the proceedings. The schnauzer was, in fact, a therapy or an emotional support dog, but she wound up getting kicked out of the courtroom for using her phone. Um <laughs> Uh, as, you know, has happened to a lot of people. Um, In terms of who the people were that came, um, there was one woman who attended who claimed that she taught a class on rape culture. There were a couple of actresses who came at some point. But in terms of the major actresses who have accused Harvey Weinstein of misconduct or who have supported uh, his accusers, it seemed like most of them voiced their support from a distance. And I don't mean from a distance in like any type of bad way, um, but it seemed like it was a more normal public for the people who decided to attend. Was the vibe different? I mean, since you have covered El Chapo and R. Kelly, um, just sort of inside the courtroom and also as you're leaving and kind of each day, did it have a similar kind of trial, sexual misconduct slash bad person potentially going to prison vibe or was it something totally different because the power structure is different with Harvey Weinstein? I think that there was a different vibe because unlike R. Kelly, Harvey Weinstein does not have support of people. Like He had a couple of supporters in addition to people affiliated with the legal team show up, you know, every now and then. But, you know, what kind of people like? Older people, people, yeah, a family, friends. A friend of his showed up. A woman who used to work with him showed up. Some of the people who sit in the rows, you know, reserved for family, friends, additional defense lawyers, were actually family members of the attorneys uh, who came to. Your eyes just widened. (laughs) I mean, mean, are they just trying to stack the rows so it doesn't look like he has zero support? No, no. I I think that you know people. You know, he doesn't have a lot of people associated with him, at least you know publicly, that are voicing their support and showing up, and so. Every now and then he had a person who knew him personally, but it wasn't it wasn't frequently. And so the rows that were reserved for his side, the two rows on the on the left side of the courtroom were predominantly his, you know, press representative, press representative's associate and, you know, anyone, you know, actually affiliated with the with the legal defense team who happened to show up. So Weinstein was a. Uh we can call him a rapist now. He's a, he's a he's convicted, a convicted rapist. rapist. That is correct. Oh, wait, there were other charges that were not correct. So, so we, what was he found not guilty of? Uh, three counts. Uh, one count of first degree rape. Um, not guilty. Not guilty. Also related to the attack on man, the same incident. And he was also found not guilty of two counts of predatory sexual assault. Now, without going too much into the weeds, the difference between first degree rape, which he was found not guilty of, and third degree rape, at the most simple level, first degree rape, forcible compulsion, like forced into sex. Um, whereas third degree rape is lack of consent. And again, I'm doing very broad strokes here. Um, so, you know, the jury found Harvey Weinstein guilty of raping Jessica Mann, but on the legal basis of her not giving consent. 
with regard to the other two counts he was found not guilty of, it's a little bit complicated to explain. Um, you know, this count, these counts are for the charge of predatory sexual assault. And predatory sexual assault basically means you have a proclivity toward being like a sexual predator. So there was one count of sexual predatory sexual assault involving Mimi Halei and another count of predatory sexual assault involving Jessica Mann. But the other crime within both of these counts was Harvey Weinstein's alleged rape of Sopranos actress Annabella Shora. So by finding Harvey Weinstein not guilty of these two counts, the jury did not find him guilty of any charge involving Annabella Shora. And it was really interesting to see in jury deliberations, it appears that they really grappled with Annabella Shore's allegation because so much of the evidence and the testimony they requested during deliberations related to her. And, you know, interestingly, a lot of people thought that Annabella Shore was the strongest witness for prosecutors mm-hmm. because unlike Halei and unlike Mann, she didn't have continued contact with him after her alleged 1993 incident, you know. But at the end of the day, the jurors did not convict Harvey Weinstein of any charge involving Annabella Shora. And the judge's instructions, I know there was this very complicated sort of flowchart about how the charges related to one another. And I know that at the end of the trial, right, the Weinstein is actually shackled and taken out and then ends up not at Rikers so far as we're recording this on Wednesday – uh, but at, at Bellevue in the prison ward. So he's convicted now, but he's yet to make his way into a prison. And I assume he's going to be appealing. I know his lawyers have said this. Uh, what, like having watched the trial, what, what were the moments that sort of – could you see some of this coming that, that, that set up his basis for appeal? Is he's both trying to get off on the charges and trying to make sure if he is convicted, he doesn't end up in prison? Um, yes, uh, definitely. So there are a couple of ways that I think his attorneys have vowed to appeal once he's sentenced and he's scheduled for sentencing on March 11. Of course, that can change. Once he's sentenced, they have 30 days to file a notice of appeal. Basically, a heads up saying, hey, we're going to appeal this. And then they have more time to file the whole flushed out legal argument. Um, and would he be at Rikers while that happened or would he potentially be out on bail? So that is the other thing is that his lawyers are going to make an appeal for him to be out on bail pending his, you know, sentencing. Based on what? Based on his health? Based on They can argue a variety I mean, of things. They can say that based on his health, he's not going to be a flight risk. They can say that he's always complied with things, you know, with regard to bail. So since he wasn't convicted of predatory sexual assault and with that comes sort of like an implication of more than an implication of having a habit of this – does that affect the bail proceedings at all? Like if he had been convicted of that, would it have been easier to keep him in jail while he awaits? Um, I'll see this with a caveat that I'm not an expert in like all of the things that will go into the appellate proceedings, both with, you know, their renewed pitch for bail or, you know, or they're saying house arrest would be OK. Um, but, you know, I'm sure – I think that I think that it's fair to say that, you know, have if he had been convicted of the predatory sexual assault count, that it would probably be a harder sell because predatory sexual assault has a maximum sentence of life in prison. So right now, sure, he's staring down 29 years, but that's not a maximum of life in prison. It's 67. We, it's pretty close. Yeah, I mean. Right. But he might not get the 29 he, years. Yeah. Chest pains. Um, can we talk a little bit more about the counts that he was? 
accused or that he was con- convicted on, I guess, this is the proper legal term. Yes. So he was convicted of rape in the third degree and something else. Criminal sexual act in the first degree stemmed from accuser Mimi Halei. Um, Mimi Halei testified that she had a couple of bizarre interactions with Harvey Weinstein. Like many women in the trial testified, a total of six women testified against him. You know, there there was a, a very similar pattern. They met in kind of a work capacity. She was in not so great of an economic and career situation because her longtime mentor had fallen ill. You know, he said, oh, oh, you know, like I can, you know, I have some things that maybe, you know, you'd be interested in that I can hook you up with. I'm being very general and being very broad. And in the interactions, which she believed were supposed to be business related, you know, the prosecutor, their whole case was he kept testing them and that he kept testing her and the other women, seeing how much he could push the envelope. So, you know, in her testimony and her ex-roommate's testimony, what prosecutor said is that, you know, it was a kind of sketchy interaction, but nothing assaultive and nothing illegal. And then like another thing would happen and then another thing would happen. And basically the case that was presented was that these increasingly sketchy interactions culminated in her feeling pressured to go to his apartment on that evening because, you know, she had said, no, I'm not going to, you know, accept your invitation to Paris. But he said, "Okay, well, I'll buy you a ticket to L.A. to um, I believe it was to go to a premiere um, for I can't recall exactly, but I believe it was to go to a premiere. So she accepted the ticket and she said that despite, you know, the stuff that had happened, she thought it would be rude if she didn't go to meet with him. And that is when, as she testified, you know, after talking a little bit in a normal way that he made his move and eventually, you know, forced oral sex on her, forcibly performed oral sex on her. Similarly, you see in prosecutors established, and this is reflected in Mann's, in Jessica Mann's testimony, that they met at a party. She was a struggling, aspiring actress. She didn't have money. She was trying to make her way in this industry. And There's that famous quote by uh, Courtney Love where everyone dismissed her because she's like a hot mess at the time, and she's on a red carpet, and this you know, some kind of entertainment reporter sticks a microphone in her face and says, what do you, what uh, suggestions do you have? And again, I'm not quoting verbatim here, obviously, like for young actresses in Hollywood. And she goes, well, uh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but, you know, if Harvey Weinstein invites you to a hotel room, don't go. And she said that, and, that, and we're talking, what, he, you know, I'm not... in the 90s, right? Yeah. yeah. And she got dropped <clears throat> after that. Could it have been for that? Could it have been for, like, drug use and misbehavior on sets? Who knows? But she got dropped pretty quickly from CAA. Uh, I think I'm getting that right. Yeah, Creative Artists Agency. Cre- yeah, CAA for that. And got – I mean, this was another She's one of – She's to a certain extent. Yeah, by essentially this was another one. Harvey was another one of those open secrets. And for years, though. Years. Because I want to I wanna ask another thing because Alex pivoted to L.A. He still faces charges in L.A. And so – did that ever come up in any capacity? Can you tell us about that? So this is one of the things that his lawyers might use for grounds for appeal. The day before the trial, January 6th, when lawyers and Harvey showed up to court to discuss any final pretrial issues, the L.A. District Attorney's Office uh, announced charges against Weinstein. Four counts, again, two separate incidents 
um, within two days of each other. Three of the counts deal with the alleged rape of a woman, um, and one of the counts deals with the alleged sexual assault of a woman, Lauren Young, and her name has been out there. She's fine using her name. Interestingly, Lauren Young testified in his New York trial. She was one of the three witnesses, the three women, who testified to prior uncharged bad acts against Weinstein. And so Harvey Weinstein, he still faces those those charges in L.A. And, you know, I had uh, requested comment from the L.A. District Attorney's Office on this. And they said, I'm not saying this verbatim, but they said that they're proceeding. They are they're going forward with the case. And um, you know, I asked, well, when would he be brought out to L.A. And, and arraigned and stuff like that? And they said after his sentencing. And that that's probably going to be part of the appeal, I would think was having the announcement of the L.A. charges on the same day as jury selection began in New York, which is pretty uncommon between prosecutors' offices. Well, yeah, um, his lawyers had asked for a cooling-off period. I think that was the exact phrasing that they used. At various times, they had asked for sequestration of the jury. I wasn't exactly sure. I don't think that they, when his lawyers asked for that, that they meant like O.J. Simpson level sequestration. I think they, you know, were saying partial. I'd have to go back through my notes. You know, they had asked for things because of their concerns about media coverage and because of their concerns about bias. They had asked for the trial to be moved out. Moved out of New York. Moved out of New York City. And also, you know, just from a legal, legal procedural standpoint, at numerous points throughout the trial, before the trial, his attorneys kept asking for mistrials. I mean, I lost count how many times his attorneys asked for mistrials, um, you know, and so... And, and mistrials based on what? My favorite My favorite was um, Harvey Weinstein was told not to use his cell phone, right? Oh, yes, and yes. And he was told again. Yeah, so this... Um, <laughs> So this happened as well. Um, Harvey Weinstein had been repeatedly warned not to use his cell phone in court. And then he was caught using his cell phone in court again. And this is before the trial began. And the judge actually said something to the effect of, like, do you want to, like, go to jail right now over using your cell phone? And his attorneys also took issue with that. Um, you know, and, you know, uh, Judge uh, Justice James Berg said something to the effect of, I didn't really mean that I was going to throw him in jail. So there was a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that they will surely, um, you know, try to use as grounds for appeal. Do we know the composition of the jury? Yes, it was seven men, five women. Any racial composition? There were three black women, one black man, and three white men selected on the first day that jury members started to be finalized. And on the second day, the jury started to be finalized. Uh, Another three men were added and then two white women. Of the seven men, I'm curious how many have daughters, um, I'm curious of the class composition. Um, it was a wide variety of classes. Um, but the interesting way that Reese came up is that prosecutors had said that the defense during jury selection repeatedly tried to keep white women off of the jury. And ultimately, after everything was decided, you know, with jury selection is there wound up being only two white women on the jury. And uh, the other interesting thing is, you know, the defense, you know, a lot of people were saying that the defense during jury selection made a really strategically bad move. They thought that they would be home free, you know, again, this is what people, you know, are saying is that the defense thought that they would be home free in the jurors that they had successfully challenged. And one of the women 
who is a white woman, that the prosecutor said, like, why are they, you know, why are they trying to throw her off the jury? And the defense's justification, their argument was like, well, she works in finance, which, you know, is like a male-dominated boys club-like industry. And so she got successfully pushed off the jury, but then they didn't have any more challenges. And so one of the white women that did wind up on the jury had actually written um, a novel, which is coming out, um, which deals with predatory older men. And so defense was not happy about that. Um, you know, I'm sure that this will probably be part of their grounds for appeal in some way. Hadid was up she, to be She was on a the potential jury. juror. Uh, that is, in fact, true. And, you know, during the juror selection process, the judge was going around. He read a list of names. You know, uh, does, do you recognize anyone on the list of names? Um, you know, do you know any of these people? And she's she, like, you know, raised yes. her hands and she's like, yeah, like, I think I might have met Harvey Weinstein on one time. But like, she, you know, she said, like, I can be a fair and impartial juror. But she was ultimately dismissed from serving on the jury in that case, you know, because, you know, both sides felt it would create too much of a stir if she had been on the jury. Speaking of the defense attorneys, and also a little bit about your part in some of the what I saw on Twitter and from some of your videos, as Harvey would leave the courthouse every day, you had the opportunity of asking him quite a few questions. Or uh, And um, for one of those questions, Donna Rotuno, right? Yes. I'm, okay, yes. Donna Rotuno turns to you and says, you're better than that. Um, what, why, why did she say that? I mean, I can't. She, by the way, made news by telling a New York Times reporter that she had never been sexually assaulted because she had, quote, never put herself in that position. Yes. Um, so, you know, when she said that, it was kind of, honestly, I, I, I can't surmise why she said that, you know, why she said that to me, because, you know, throughout the trial, people had been asking similar questions and, Was it just at a point of the trial where tensions were especially high? I'm not really sure. But I would say that, you know, being in reporter mode, I've told that I have a very loud question-asking voice. Um, You're better than that. Isn't that the point? I mean, when you're in a pool of other reporters and you're trying to get your question out there. I mean, I I thought that that comment was so... um, The one she made to the Times reporter or the one she made to the... I think both, actually. Just kind of... Part of this, like, you don't need men for patriarchy. Like, women will do just fine every now right. and again. I, I, well, I mean, she she had a lot to say on the subject that was, in my opinion, in my totally outside of everyone else's opinion, I'm not claiming anyone else's opinion, she made a lot of news with that statement for herself, and all of a sudden everyone knew her name. But sadly, a lot of women believe that. You know, sadly, there are enough women who believe that how one dresses dictates how their circumstances turn out. And I'm curious um, what the del- what the deliberations inside the jury were. That's why I was curious because about the number of people who had daughters, because unfortunately, we still feel like instead of teaching rape culture to boys, it's only about teaching it to girls instead of saying boys don't rape girls it's like girls don't wear short skirts and put yourself in a position to be raped so it was it was interesting so there have been three a total of three jurors who have spoken they haven't really said much there was an inside edition interview sit down with i believe juror number shout out to bill o'reilly inside edition original host we'll do it live fuck it 
<laughs> and I spoke to one of the jurors. And the sentiment is that, like, it was stressful. It was an emotional decision to make. It was, you know, tense. Um, what so- question were you asking him when she, like, turned to you? Oof. I want to say everything's as if it's still very much a blur. But I want well, to say— Well, you've been say- working on a rape trial for a month and a half every day, reading, writing, living, breathing it. So— I think we're going to give you a pass on FAQ. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's it is like, and I don't say this like in you know in any type of you know, negative or cold or calloused way, but I think that you know all of us were treating this the way that we would treat any other trial as reporters. Um, and you know, obviously, you know, this was a trial that got a lot of attention. It was seen as a litmus test for the Me Too movement in a criminal court of law, not just a civil court of law, but a criminal court of law. A lot of people wondered, what does this now mean about, you know, he said, she said type situations when it comes to juries deliberating? Um, But at the end of the day, you know, we had to just go there with, as my friend uh, Molly Crane Newman, another badass uh, female journalist covering this case. um, (laughs) Yes, at the Daily News, um, you know, she said that, you know, she just, you know, had to be in reporter mode. And that's how we were. Like, you know, we were in reporter mode. Um, Well, because you all are professionals. Yes. Um, So, I mean, were you supposed to go there and cry and be emotional and scream out? I mean, a lot of times, like, the the only opportunity people have to ask a question is when someone's, like, walking out or your typical, you know, perp walk scenario or, like, after a courtroom, a day in the court. I want to say that the question I asked, and I can't remember, was on the day that Jessica Mann testified that Harvey Weinstein didn't have testicles. I want to say it was on that day because I do remember at some point asking a question to the effect of, was Jessica Mann's description of your body accurate? I want to say it was on that day. But again, I can't recall exactly because it was long hours. Um, And I, I would also like... The core group of reporters, you know, house press reporters who worked on this, we were all, you know, women. It was, you know, Jan Ransom at the Times, Rebecca Rosenberg at the at the New York Post, um, Shana Jacobs at the Washington Post, uh, Mark Danis at, um, you know, Fox, uh, Cassandra Gutierrez at CBS News, um, and Mary Altifer, of course, the AP photographer who took that, you know, photo series. And I think that perhaps... Shout out to the photo series on AP, Uh, like a beautiful photo series. Patty Hurtado at Bloomberg. I can't forget Patty. There's that incredible um, photo of, I forget which reporter it is, but she's almost all the way out the window. In the bathroom. In the bath, from the bathroom. She's got like a striped shirt on. It's just, if you you haven't seen it, like take take a look because it's beautiful. dangerous doing that. Yes, that that is that Adam, is dangerous. Um, focus but, up. <laughs> but then she could get the like what I imagine was a great overhead shot, and I've actually now looked for the overhead shot she must have had. But that that's not the only coverage that the press corps had gotten. Right, there was a Nation article written, kind of almost like criticizing a little bit the. Oh yeah, <laughs> the reporters. Do you want? Oh yeah, so. An article came out. Um, Harry, what was it called? Why Harvey Weinstein Might Walk. And then that Nation reporter in that said, these hundred credentialed reporters betrayed no curiosity about the public observer's assessment of events, at least not in the days I attended on elevators and in the restroom. Their banter abruptly stopped when they noticed us. And then for the most part, their dispatches parroted the prosecution's narrative. 
Like, what, what do you think of that? Can I groan into the microphone, or will that like make people's like eardrums like hurt? Okay, so ASMR groan. <sighs> All right, so there's there's a lot going on in that very lengthy article, and what I will say is this: my sense is that the article reflected a gross misunderstanding of courts reporting. The reason that courts reporters stop talking when people are around them that they don't know is because we don't we don't want to accidentally talk around jurors. You know, you get into an elevator or lawyers ba- or, or private lawyers, investigators or, or private investigators and it doesn't even or family mean- members. It's like this is journalism 101. Also, yeah. you're supposed to stay like unbiased. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, as, as reporters, as professors, as lawyers, I mean, there's nothing worse than being in the airport and hearing a lawyer talking about his client's case loudly into the cell phone. And it's like, I don't know if I know this person, but now I know all of their business. So why would reporters be any different in a highly publicized rape trial? I, I mean, I honestly, I don't know. I, I don't know what what we should have been doing that was so offensive that we didn't take interest. I mean, to give an example of you know, how on guard we had to be about banal things. And I'm talking by, I mean, banal things by like hanging out in the bathroom for a few minutes to catch, you know, catch a moment and, you know, talking about like reality TV. People, like there was one woman who, when we were in the bathroom, walked up to us as we were talking and said, oh, I don't mean to interject. And then interjected. And she's like, so what's going on? Like, what do you think of the case? What do you think of Harvey? What do you think of this and that and this and that? And it's like, who are you? Like, you expect, and I don't mean that in a snobbish way, but it's like, do you, you know, considering all of the surveillance and security stuff that was discussed at this trial, I mean, we're talking about contracts saying Annabella Shore is on the red list. Like, we need to figure out, like, what's happening with her. You know, here's money if we can kill a story. Like, you really expect us to, like, be like, yeah, so I think this about the trial and blah, 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 blah. And then your article comes out, which has to be, like, no opinion in it or, or, you know, you have to stay level-headed in your writing and uh yeah you know but it was just it was just like a really strange thing to take issue with and again this is reporting 101 and most of the conversations the we had that... were completely silly not silly but like completely unrelated to the trial so so let's stay with reporting 101 for a minute as we get toward uh the end of our time here and thank you again for coming back in thank you for having me so for all our listeners who haven't covered a trial in full, just take us through reporting 101, how this played out in this courthouse, um, in this courtroom, you know, um, how you, how you make sure your quotes were accurate. If you're able to file or tweet from the room, what happens if you leave and have to go to the bathroom? Just how this plays out day to day. pictures. Record, so not. I would say, um, and I, I know we're running out of time, but I would say is, you know, for a trial like this, so many people are trying to get in. We had to queue up at the courthouse very early. So that was you know, a big difference between other cases is you had to get there really early if you wanted to get a seat credentialed or not, you know. So that was one big thing. We were not allowed to file or, I'm sorry, transmit from within the courtroom. What this means, we were not dis- allowed to send emails, even if unrelated to the case, and we were not allowed to tweet from within the courtroom. So if we did notes or stuff, something like that, like taking notes, we were allowed to use our computers. But like when we were taking notes or something like that, if we had to file a story, we would actually like leave the courtroom and pop outside, literally hit send and then run back in. And, and how easy is it for you to get in and get out of the courtroom? 
Well, that was so that was the other thing. Members of the media, uh, we had to fight for months to institute a system so that we would be able to get back in line and not lose our seats like at the lunch break. Like we had repeatedly been told like, oh, no, you're not going to get like any type of index card or anything like you just have to queue up back in line after lunch. And all of us were like, "Okay, well, for the people who are just here by themselves and can't pay line standards, that's not fair. And so it took lots of fighting and brokering to institute like these minor, simple policies to just be able to cover this. And this wasn't the case when you covered El Chapo? Um, El Chapo, well, that was where we, we justified this. We're like, listen, they they came up with a line system in El Chapo. We were able to put our names on a list. Why can't we do that here? Like, it was a struggle. And eventually, like, we were able to get it done. And we're there very thankful that, you know, we were finally able to get that concession, Not you know, because that would have made the po- trial impossible to cover unless you were from a wealthy news organization who could send, you know, another person to help you out. So that, I mean, there was like a struggle to make sure that we could have these things in place. Um, But the thing that I will point out is that throughout this case, there have been numerous First Amendment issues, access issues, and broadcast um, publications fought repeatedly for permission to take photos in the courtroom, denied, 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 under the law, Judges have to hear arguments if there's a dispute between a photo request or a video request and the lawyers on the case kept submitting applications, wouldn't let people make oral arguments. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. You know, if there's a concern about courtroom order, then a really easy solution that has been done in the past is to let photographers shoot like a pool photography system. One or two photographers takes the photos, distributes them to the people who are there. And you can do that before the jury is inside, before the proceeding begins. We do not have one single photo of Harvey Weinstein in the courtroom from this trial. Not one single photo. And if, you know, the women who, you know, were on the stand testifying against Harvey Weinstein, they, you know, if they hadn't wanted to walk through the hall and had their photo- and photos taken, they wouldn't have had to. There are different entrances into the courtroom. But just to put it into perspective, we have photos of the of the women entering the courtroom, photos of the accusers who are bearing their souls in front of a public who are, you know, again, if they didn't want to be photographed, there are other entrances into the courtroom, but who are doing that. But we can't get one photo of Harvey Weinstein in the courtroom. So does that I mean, show it, just, it just, boggles the mind. But it, does that just reiterate the extent to which his power is still so strong? I, I mean, or I his don't, money is so long that there's a safely, different set of rules for him? I, I think it can safely be said that that is an example for whatever reason of uh, protections for these kind of men. Well, the interesting thing, and I know we have to wrap up, the interesting thing is, you know, courthouse rules, uh, Office of Courts Administration rules, you are allowed to shoot inside the courthouse, shoot shoot video, I'm sorry, shoot photos, you know, in the courthouse, wherever. The only two people in the past few years who photographers have not been able to shoot in the downstairs lobby, guess who? Harvey Weinstein and Cuba Gooding Jr., and I'm not – listen, I'm not saying one way or another why this is the case. Why not? But, you know, the irony – Show me the money. I mean the irony <laughs> – Right on time. You, you know, it's Harry just 
it's you know again i i'm not voicing you know sides opinions on one side of the case or another that's not my job as a reporter who is relaying the facts but you know as a reporter i do feel like i can have an opinion on the first amendment and the access issues in this case and to me it's you know why why you know there can't be a single photo of harvey weinstein in the courtroom before the jury's even in there. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't understand. Um, well, on behalf of FAQ and I would say the vast majority of citizens of the city of New York, I would like to thank you and your colleagues for your due diligence. I mean, all these trials are very difficult. I mean, when you covered El Chapo, when you came in and talked to us about that, that was, it's grueling. It seems like it's also physically grueling to say nothing of mentally grueling as well. And so... We'll see whether or not Harvey Weinstein, as you mentioned, is sentenced on March 11th um, and he faces a minimum of five years and a maximum of 29 years. And that's not including whatever will happen in Los Angeles. Correct. Right. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's always, you know, always a pleasure. I mean that sincerely. All right. Thanks for listening to FAQ. Thank you. Thank you. FAQ. Victoria. She is. She is. Victoria. Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to FAQ NYC. Harry Siegel is back, as is Christina Greer and Alex Brooklyn, our executive producer. We recorded today's episode (laughs) at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and And Research. research. And research. Thank you, Harry. We would like to give a special thank you to Victoria Bekempis for coming in today. She is a freelance reporter and all-around New York bad bitch. Yeah. Wah, wah. That is an accepted title, and we have gotten it pre-approved. We'd also like to thank our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn, and our producer, Adam Kamara, who mixed and mastered today's episode. Uh. And if you don't know, now you know. Vic, Vic, Vic Victoria. Victoria. You are. You are. Vic, 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 Victoria. She is. She Watch Puppy Sue Us.